Welcome to the Inside the Board Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. Hey everyone, it's Patrick. This is the psychiatry section of our USMLE Step 2 Study Smarter series. This is a best of episode mashing up all of the questions from our past three years of podcasts related to psychiatry. But first... Here is a mentorship moment with Doc Oseray. Now in this, we're going to talk about the resources you can use to study for your psychiatry clerkship. I'm going to keep this simple. We're going to keep it quick, right to the point. So psych's a super fun rotation. Um, you know, you, you get to see things you don't normally get to see in other aspects of medicine. If your university has an inpatient psych unit, um, that's especially great for you because the psych pathologies or conditions you see in the outpatient clinic um, are not going to be the same ones that you will see on the inpatient. You know, the inpatient will have much more severe disease or unique conditions um, that require inpatient hospitalization. Um, that's a great learning opportunity. So the question is, how do you prepare for psych and how do you study for the shelf? Um, so the beautiful thing about psychiatry, it's like no difference than anything else in medicine. You know, you go to your unit, you present to your team, you get assigned patients, you interview them, um, you'll do an assessment and plan, you'll present, nothing's different. So that classic thing, you already know what to do on third year clerkship. Um, and so you just kind of continue. But how do you study for the shelf and how do you study throughout the core rotation? Um, I used only one resource with a bit of a modification. Uh, I just, what did I use? I used uh, first aid for the psychiatry clerkship. God, I'm telling you, first aid must be making billions because they just, they have like perfect things for everything. The reason why I like this is one, um, a lot of upperclassmen recommended it to me. And two, look how tiny it is. It's so tiny. Uh, so kind of a beneficial thing. It's it's to the point. It's efficient. You talk about farm. You talk about the pathologies. You really get close to it. And the content on here is really on point with what you see on the shelf. So I think that's why so many people who were above me recommended it and probably why I'm recommending it today. Uh, and this is really the only resource I used. It kind of comes down to the question of how do you study while you're on rotation? You know, you get there early in the morning, you're there working all day, you may have some downtime to kind of review or read books, um, and then you get off late after sign out and you're kind of like, man, that was like a full work day. When do I have time to study? Um, that's kind of why it's nice to have succinct books. Um, you know, throughout anything in third year, you can have a bunch of resources. Uh, but this is kind of, I think, more of a realistic point that when you have limited time, uh, you want to pick like one strong resource to read and like one Q bank to use. And that's all. Because in reality, you're not going to read these huge books. You're not going to read a bunch of resources. Time's limited. Um, you know, you want to be on the wards learning. You want to come in with knowledge because you read the night before. Um, and you want to have fun because clerkships is like some of the most fun time you'll have in medical school. So all I did was, you know, I would, you know, go in in the morning, you know, you can read a little bit the weekend before through this first day, flip through it, get comfortable. It's a lot of stuff you remember from, uh, you know, the first, second years of med school, um, and especially studying for step one, a lot of it's, uh, you know, the same content. So you'll review this book, you know, go in, learn from your team, see how they want you to see patients, how they want you to, um, you know, examine them, ask questions, how they want you to present. That's all going to be university specific, but for the most part, the same things as we do in everything in medicine. Um, but then when you go home, you know, at the end of the day, or if you have downtime, the beauty of this book is, you know, it's broken, you know, how they, they, it's really quick chapters. They kind of break it down into different clear topics that you'll just go into. And you can just like read it through the day. I mean, look how like wide it's, it's like kind of big font. It's spaced out. There's like cool things in the corner. Um, 
As a side point, I don't get paid by anyone to tell you these things. These are just books that I like, so I don't think I'm getting paid by like first aid or anything. Um, I added a little bit to it. So you can talk to your upperclassmen about the um, Kaplan PDFs for step two. I'm not going to say anything more, but just talk to them and be like, hey, where did I get that? They look like this. Um, so I threw in child development, uh, that's chapter three, uh, some psychoform, and that's about it. Just because I, I just thought it was like things that I wanted to include that were coming up. And I think someone told me to throw some of those in, so I did, and it paid off. So the shelf, really, if you just read this book and you do your U world, you'll be fine. Um, if you haven't, if I haven't said this in the other videos, like throughout your third year, one nice thing to do is just pick one Q bank and just stick with it and do it throughout third year. Um, if you know, at this point you're in third year, you've already taken USMLE step one, you'll be thinking about step two and you already understand the value and the beauty in clerk, um, in Q banks where it's not, you know, so much something for you to test yourself as it is for you to read about patient cases and do example questions. And then, you know, when you look at the answers to these questions, you learn so much, you know, it's like a textbook in and of itself of really high yield topics. So all I did, I mean, I used UWorld throughout third year. Um, again, I don't get paid by UWorld or anyone to say this, but it's just my preference. I just used UWorld. Um, some people were saying, you know, oh, don't use UWorld, save that for step two. You'll remember all the questions. Um, wow, you must have great memory if you, you know, you, you did the UWorld once and when you were studying for step two, you remember it again. I didn't think it was that big of a deal. There's so many questions on you world. And if by pure chance you remember a ton of them, okay. You know, the point is it's the content in the answers that you're learning. Uh, but it's up to you. If you want, you can use a different QBank um, for your third year clerkships. I just use UWorld. Some people use Kaplan. Up to you. Just pick one, you know, hit psych, do the questions, read from it, um, read the read it the corresponding sections in here, write in your notes, um, do that kind of progressively throughout the clerkship. The problem is I say that and everything sounds great in the theoretical sense. You know, you tell yourself, I'm going to get up, I'm going to go to the unit, I'm going to see my patients, I'm going to have downtime, I'm going to skim this book, I'm going to get home, I'm going to do some, uh, you know, block, and then, you know, the next day routine. The problem is that sometimes does happen, but also you get tired sometimes. Some days are just drawn out, some days are just stressful, and you won't get to the block. So do the best that you can when you have downtime to study, um, but also take downtime to rest. You know, don't tell yourself, I should always be reading. I should always be doing a QBank. Um, you know, you don't want to wear yourself out. Third year is long. There's a lot of clerkships. There's a lot of shelves. You have step two waiting for you at the end of it. You know, kind of keep yourself at a healthy pace. Give yourself breaks. Um, you know, be smart about it. So when you have downtime and you're not too tired, you know, keep the, it's a very tiny book. Just keep it in your bag. Um, and just kind of work through a chapter. If you want, talk to a resident about a chapter. Those kind of give you a little mini lecture. That's super fun. Um, makes the content much more entertaining and much more memorable. If you see a patient in the morning, um, and they have something and you're not too familiar with it, look at this real quick. Cause more often than not, the questions you'll get pimped on in psych are just going to be in this book. Um, so kind of give yourself an edge and just, you know, come prepared to morning presentations because you kind of quickly reviewed a text on the content of uh, whatever the patient has. So go through UWorld, you know, slowly throughout the um, clerkship, click the psych and just go through it and study whatever you're learning for each question under each little thing. Look it up in this first aid book, read it here, write your note from UWorld into it. As you get closer to the shelf, just review this book. You have it with you in your bag. You have downtime. You can look at it. And even better, you know, when you're like seeing patients and you're reviewing them and they have something and you look it up and like, oh, I've already read this and I have my UWorld notes and you can kind of give a strong presentation in the morning and 
it only helps. So hope you guys found this useful, super simple technique. We have to psych. It's a fun rotation. Have fun. Soak it in. Um, always happy, guys, to help you out if I can more. Let me know if you have any questions. And as always, enjoy your studies. Search Doc Osiray's YouTube channel or click the link in the show notes. That's Doc Osiray, D-O-C-O-S-S-A-R-E-H. Thanks, Mo, for letting us use this content. All right, and here are some examples from our All Audio QBank. You can download our app. Just search the App Store for Inside the Boards. It is a beta version, but we are very soon going to be launching a cross-platform application featuring not only free meditations to help you center yourself, as they say, uh, during those stressful study times, or just to encourage healthy uh, living and self-care, as well as other free content, and of course, our all-audio QBank with the Step 2 version powered by Online MedEd, and the Step 1 version powered by Lecturio and Exam Circle. Welcome back to the Inside the Board's All Audio Question Bank. First question. A 35-year-old man comes to the office for a follow-up appointment. He tells you that he is doing well, except that he seems to be spending most of his time organizing various things around his house. He states that in the last week, he has organized his bookshelf, his kitchen, and has color-coded his wardrobe. He enjoys doing these tasks, but states that there seems to be no end to his organizing. He states he's always been this way and that when his possessions are not organized, he gets very frustrated. His symptoms have affected his ability to maintain relationships with his family and friends. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A, generalized anxiety disorder. B, normal behavior. C, obsessive compulsive disorder. Or D, obsessive compulsive personality disorder. So the correct answer is D, obsessive-compulsive personality disorder. Now, the patient in the STEM has a personality disorder, and we know that because the pattern of behavior is negatively affecting his life, which is exemplified with the mention of the negative impact on his relationships. He's exhibiting obsessive tendencies, which would make us think of both OCD and OCPD. However, because these tendencies are things that the patient seems to be relatively okay with doing, in fact, he kind of mentions that he likes them, we pick OCPD. You may have been tempted to pick OCD, and a lot of people will use that term in kind of layman's terms colloquially to describe people who are very particular or organized or like to have things a certain way. However, Obsessive compulsive disorder is distinctly different. And one of the easiest way to tell the difference on the exam is to look for patients to have some sort of shame, insight, dislike of the obsessions that they're doing. And we usually have a pattern of more strong compulsion type behavior. So big thing that you want to look for in differentiating OCPD versus OCD for the purposes of like step one is to see if the patient has insight. If the patient seems to think that the things that they're doing are totally ridiculous, but they just can't stop doing them, then you want to think of OCD. If they think that the things that they're doing are actually good, they enjoy doing them, they think everything should be neat and organized, and that's just the way things should be, think more about OCPD. This isn't going to hold exactly true for diagnosis in real life, but it's kind of one of those times where that's how the board's going to test you. The board's insider secret for answering this type of question is to remember to be always be thinking of a personality disorder if we show that there is significant impact on the patient's life functioning well-being. Personality traits, then? would be things that people exhibit that 
resemble characteristics of personality disorders, but don't actually have a drastically negative effect on the patient's life or ability to function. Next question. A 21-year-old woman comes to the emergency department after she was sexually assaulted the previous night. She was jogging in a park near her apartment when she was abducted by a man wearing a mask. She reports vaginal penetration without the use of a condom. She was so mentally shaken by the event that she went directly home after she escaped, rather than coming to the hospital. She has taken a shower and changed her clothes since the incident. Medical history is non-contributory, and she is not currently taking any medications. She is a college student who drinks five to six alcoholic beverages on the weekends and has no smoking history. Physical examination is unremarkable. Pelvic examination shows several vaginal lacerations. Which of the following is the best next step in management of this patient? A, antibiotic prophylaxis for possible chlamydia trachomatis infection. B, offer a forensic evaluation. C, perform an immediate psychiatric evaluation. Or D, prophylaxis for HIV. And the correct answer is B, offer a forensic evaluation. Remember that in cases of sexual assault, a forensic evaluation should always be offered within 72 hours of the assault, whether the victim is showered or not. Remember, a chaperone should be present for this examination. The board's insider tip for answering this type of question is to ask yourself what the question writers might be trying to make sure you know. Obviously, prophylaxis for STIs is in more than one answer choice and all seem reasonable. So we look at what the question is actually asking and see that this is a next appropriate step in management question. What is more likely to be first, prescribing an intervention or performing an examination? In general, if you are completely lost, you will get more questions right choosing to perform an exam first. Next question. A 45-year-old man comes to the emergency department for evaluation after a car accident. Past medical history is significant for hep C, cirrhosis, and alcoholism. Vital signs are within normal limits. Physical examination shows an uncooperative, intoxicated male with slurred speech. He's found to have a laceration to the liver and is admitted for immediate surgery. 24 hours after surgery, repeat vital signs are significant for a heart rate of 130, respirations of 20, blood pressure of 180 over 100, and oxygen saturation of 94% on room air. Which of the following is the most appropriate pharmacotherapy? A, benztropine, B, haloperidol, C, lactulose, or D, lorazepam? And the correct answer is, of course, choice D, lorazepam. Alcohol withdrawal syndrome is treated primarily with benzodiazepines like lorazepam, diazepam, and the one with a really long half-life, chlordiazepoxide. A banana bag, so to speak, of thiamine, folic acid, and multivitamins is often co-administered to prevent additional complications. Insomnia, autonomic symptoms, increased hand tremors, nausea, and or vomiting, psychomotor agitation, anxiety, seizures, auditory, visual, or tactile hallucinations can also happen. Vitamins such as thiamine and folic acid will treat the nutrient deficiency and prevent additional complications like anemia and Wernicke encephalopathy. A banana bag of these things is often administered intravenously in case of this nutrient deficiency. The other important part to remember from this question is that as far as the peak incidence of withdrawal for alcohol use, you want to be thinking about a patient who spend about a day, maybe a little longer, in the hospital following a surgery or something like that, sometimes seen after a very benign surgery, like an appendectomy, patient is suddenly in an environment where they cannot obtain alcohol, where they're not going to be drinking alcohol regularly like they would be doing outside of the hospital. And so right around the 24-hour to 48-hour mark, 
they're going to have a lot of alcohol withdrawal symptoms. Watch out for signs of seizure or altered mental status, shakiness, and then of course, high blood pressure, tachycardia that we see in this picture. Next question. A 28-year-old woman with history of bipolar disorder is brought to the ED for an acute episode of mania. She has not slept in three days. She falsely believes she is a famous movie director and has rambling, pressured speech. She has a positive pregnancy test and says that she's surprised to find out that she's pregnant because she hasn't missed her period. Which of the following is the best medical management for her acute manic episode? A. Haloperidol B. Lamotrigine C. Lithium or D. Valproate And the correct answer is A. Haloperidol Haloperidol is the drug of choice for acute mania in pregnancy. Why is this? Because in the first trimester, haloperidol is going to be the one with the least risk of side effects. Remember, lamotrigine is used for maintenance therapy in all three of the trimesters, but is really not good in an acute manic episode. The other choices we have, lithium and valproate, are known teratogens. Remember, for lithium, we have Epstein's abnormality as far as what you need to know for the boards and renal problems in the developing fetus. And of course, valproic acid and carbamazepine, we need to think about CNS defects. We have a patient who's on valproic acid. Think about supplementing with folate and preventing those neural tube defects potentially. However, haloperidol, much safer. The Boards Insider tip is that some questions will require you to think in multiple systems. Remember, the most important time for the teratogenic effects to occur from medications is usually in the first trimester with organogenesis. And for site questions, don't undertreat pregnant patients. Next question. A 30-year-old Caucasian male with no significant past medical history is brought to the emergency department by the police for apparent substance intoxication. His temperature is 38 degrees Celsius, pulse is 110, respirations are 16, and blood pressure is 155 over 80. Physical examination shows a euphoric and diaphoretic male with dilated pupils. An ECG is obtained and shows tachycardia with normal sinus rhythm. If the patient were to begin to withdraw from the substance he has abused, which of the following symptoms might you expect to be present? A, increased appetite. B, increased sympathetic stimulation. C, rhinorrhea. Or D, seizures. And the correct answer is A, increased appetite. What would he be withdrawing from? Cocaine. So we have a patient with a high temperature, slightly high temperature, rapid pulse, elevated respirations, it's diaphoretic, pupils are big, he's euphoric and tachycardic with a normal sinus rhythm. We're going to be thinking about the stimulant cocaine. Remember that cocaine withdrawal causes vivid and unpleasant dreams, insomnia or hypersomnia, anger, increased appetite, and psychomotor retardation or agitation. Cocaine, by virtue of its mechanism of action, is a stimulator of the sympathetic nervous system, so we're not going to see increased sympathetic stimulation with withdrawal from cocaine. Cocaine inhibits dopamine reuptake. Cocaine intoxication leads to an increased sympathetic response characterized by tachycardia, nausea, dilated pupils, weight loss, and diaphoresis. Opiates are agonists of opiate receptors. As patients withdraw from an opioid intoxication, they may experience dysphoria, lacrimation, rhinorrhea, weakness, diaphoresis, piloerection, myalgias, nausea, and vomiting. Note that opioid withdrawal symptoms are not life-threatening. 
Patients who are chronic alcoholics then or benzodiazepine abusers can experience seizures as they withdraw. This can lead to a life-threatening condition known as delirium tremens. Delirium tremens is characterized by altered mental status and seizures. Treatment is with benzodiazepines. Boards Insider tip for this is that for most things, withdrawal symptoms as the opposite of the intoxication symptom. So grouping the stimulants and sedatives into two mental categories while you study is a technique to help you remember the effects of intoxication and withdrawal. For both, intoxication with a sedative looks a lot like withdrawal from a stimulant and vice versa. Then as you study, anywhere this is not intuitive is the only thing you have to remember. For example, alcohol withdrawal causes anxiety, which makes sense since stimulants cause anxiety in the acute setting in intoxication. Tachycardia and hypertension are also seen in alcohol withdrawal, which makes sense because stimulants cause this in intoxication with stimulants. Hallucinations, stimulants cause this in intoxication and seizures which stimulants don't cause. So, well, not often anyway. So you memorize this fact that alcohol withdrawal can cause seizures because this is kind of a thing that's more different. Then while reviewing, you say to yourself, okay, alcohol withdrawal looks like stimulant intoxication plus can cause seizures. Then voila, you've just narrowed down the things you need to actually memorize as new information. Remember grouping like syndromes and studying their differences is an important way to consolidate the amount you have to memorize. You also should know the receptors that are different among the sedatives and stimulants. This does not imply that the receptors are the same. All right. So there you have it. There's an example from the psychiatry set within our all audio cue bank. Here's the next question. Welcome back, Boards Insiders. This is Elizabeth Beeman, and I'm here today to host our psychiatry episode for the Study Smarter series. And today joining me to do some question dissections is Alex Icono. He's here from PCOM in Philly, and he's a medical student in his third year, and he's very interested in psychiatry. Hi, everybody. All right. So our first question, Alex, I'm going to ask you the first one, if that's okay. Are you ready? Yep. Ready. Okay. A 35-year-old man comes into the office for an annual visit. He says he has been under a lot of stress lately at home and at work. He does not get along with his coworkers and believes it is because he does a better job than them. He suspects that his wife is cheating on him with the neighbor because he does not make enough money to support her. He denies any auditory and visual hallucinations, special powers, ideas of reference, or beliefs that others can hear his thoughts. His wife says that he has always had a difficult time confiding in others and would hold grudges against friends and coworkers. Which defense mechanism is the man most likely to display? A, acting out. B, denial. C, dissociation. D, projection, or E, regression? All right. So looking at the question stem, this guy clearly has probably a paranoid personality disorder. Mm -hmm. And with people who are paranoid, they have a lot of distrust and suspicion of others. Or well, they have a lot of distrust and suspicion. And in this question stem, he's thinking that his wife is cheating on him. And he's, in some regards, projecting his own distrust of others onto these other people. So I would say our most likely answer is probably D, projection. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. I think that's a good way to go about it. So the big things to know are that other ways of categorizing our defense mechanisms that you'll see listed, these like subcategories, the only two really categories you have to know are the immature and the mature defense mechanisms. And the immature ones are kind of considered 
bad, the ones that you don't want to do. And the mature defense mechanisms are considered the ones that are a little psychologically healthier. The mature defense mechanisms, altruism, humor, sublimation, or suppression. This guy is not likely to do any of those. I think that you're right in that it would probably be projection because often people will have undesirable kind of impulses, undesirable thoughts, and it's easier for them to process it if they kind of have these paranoid beliefs that other people are are having those thoughts or undesirable goals. Yeah. So for those who are looking for ways to, if you, for example, couldn't differentiate between these different answer choices, a really good thing to think about is just what is he doing compared to what the mechanism is? So if you just read the name of the mechanism, like denial. So those people are people that like deny that they have cancer. He's in the question stem. He's not denying anything. He's thinking that his wife is cheating on him with a neighbor. So that is not something that he's denying. He's saying that he's doing that instead. And he's not acting out because he's not throwing a tantrum or some other like outburst from it. It's just a belief that he is projecting onto another person. So in some ways you can use that to, if you, for example, didn't know the different defense mechanisms, you can kind of guess from the word and from just knowing some (laughs) dictionary definitions of the words, Mm -hmm. which one would be the most likely in this situation. Right. So I guess in a sense, he's projecting something false onto like the people around him. And that fits really Mm -hmm. well with paranoid kind of beliefs. Mm -hmm. Did you talk about the other ones? We could talk about acting out is kind of obvious. It's just Mm -hmm. like when a little kid throws a temper tantrum and we think of acting out as like uh, people have very strong negative emotions. And so they do something like, I don't know, destroy someone's car because they're angry or something to kind of physically act exactly what they're feeling internally. Um, That's an immature defense. (laughs) Denial, like you talked about. Dissociation is where patients kind of become disconnected from their memories and their attention. This is a way to also deal with very strong emotions. But remember that we see this in like post-traumatic stress disorder. We see dissociation in dissociative identity disorder very rare but the one we think of with multiple personality disorder but kind of anything where the patient is is removing memory from themselves or isn't fully present in the moment because they aren't able to process the emotions and then regression where person basically acts like a little kid because they can't really handle the stress of whatever situation they're in so they revert to kind of like a childlike state. But I think you're right. If you know the dictionary definition of these words, it it would be easy to kind of see that the only one that really like would fit with a patient who's applying kind of false beliefs onto the world around him would be projection. Mm -hmm. That's good. Do you want to ask me the next one? Of course. So our next question, a 12-year-old girl comes to the pediatrician's office with her mother because of an intense fear of leaving the house for the past year. The patient reports that she has fears over leaving the house alone and refuses to take the public school bus because the other kids think I'm weird. Her mother says that her daughter never goes out to play with other kids and even goes out to the park when it's relatively empty. The patient says that she doesn't like wide spaces and denies any bullying at school. Her grades are suffering as a result of this problem. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A. Agoraphobia. B. Post-traumatic stress disorder. C, separation anxiety disorder, D, social anxiety disorder, or E, specific phobia? 
Okay, so separation anxiety disorder, I wouldn't, I would maybe see how someone could think that it was that because the kid isn't wanting to leave home, wasn't wanting to leave mom potentially, but very explicit about the fact that the child isn't really worried about leaving mom. They're not really worried about being separated from their parent as much as they have this specific fear of the wide open spaces, fear of going outside in general, even if mom, we assume even if mom was present, wouldn't want to go outside the house. And that's specifically something associated with agoraphobia. Patients with agoraphobia generally will describe that they just don't want to leave the house. They don't want to be in open spaces. They also don't like enclosed spaces or crowds. That's also usually very um, anxiety-provoking for them. And they are pretty much always going to avoid any kind of traveling using like public transportation. So those kind of things, when they're specifically described, would make me think about agoraphobia over the other answer choices. And that is the correct answer. Agoraphobia is the anxiety disorder characterized by a persistent and irrational fear of being in situations outdoors or where help and escape are difficult. So like you said, they're afraid of crowds, they're afraid of wide open spaces, and they're afraid of leaving the safety of their own home. And this is something that is kind of Difficult to treat, but they do say that treatments can involve uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and medications that you can use include benzodiazepines and selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors because it is considered an anxiety disorder. So medications that help reduce anxiety can help reduce agoraphobia as well. Awesome. And I I think the symptoms need to persist for at least six months since this is psychiatry and we're always trying to remember the timelines for stuff. Timelines, yes. So it does have to... Persist for at least six months. All right. So next question for you. After watching a particular movie, a young man becomes infatuated by an actress portrayed in the film and begins to stalk her, believing that they belong together. When she continually ignores his phone calls and poems, he believes he will win her love and catch her attention by assassinating the current president. He suffers from no visual or auditory hallucinations. He instead uses his odd and eccentric beliefs to influence his behaviors. Based on this information, which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A, schizoid personality disorder, B, schizophrenia, C, schizotypal personality disorder, or D, paranoid personality disorder. Okay, well, this patient here is clearly having some delusional thinking (laughs) in that this actress and him belong together and that he should assassinate the current president. So I would say, given our answer choices, He's got some delusions and magical thinking. So my answer's choice would probably be schizotypal personality disorder only because I know the differentiation between the schizoid, schizophrenia, schizotypal, and that kind of stuff. So for those who don't know, an easy way to differentiate them is schizoid personality disorder patients tend to be your patients that are loners. They want to live an isolated lifestyle and they are very like... Not introverted because mm. I'm an introvert and I'm not at all. I'm not at all schizoid. Hopefully, but um, like a super introvert. So, yeah, like a super introvert. They're they're very comfortable with like being retracted from all mm. other people and being just by themselves. Mm. Schizophrenia, though, on the other hand, is when people have hallucinations, delusions, uh, disorganized speech, or they could have like some of the negative symptoms like catatonic or catatonic behaviors and other such negative symptoms. But in the question stem, it's clear that our patient is not having any hallucinations. He just has 
delusions, so he doesn't meet all the criteria for schizophrenia, as well as he doesn't meet the timeline criteria, which is that these symptoms need to be there for more than six months. Mm. So that leaves us just answers C and D, and as our other question showed what a paranoid personality disorder is like, this guy doesn't present at all the same way. Mm -hmm. So the answer choice is obviously C, schizotypal disorder. Yeah, exactly. I think that pretty much answered everything. The schizotypal's a little more weird, eccentric, magical thinking, like you said. And schizoid is just a little more like flat affect, like schizophrenics have, but without the psychosis. So I think that mm-hmm. that was pretty good. Good answer. All righty. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so for our next question, we have a 30-year-old woman was attacked, held at gunpoint, robbed, and beaten after leaving a restaurant in the late evening. Despite this, she managed to report the incident to the police and continue with her daily activities. Two months later, she comes to the psychiatrist's office because she is having difficulty going to work and participating in other activities. Which of the following constellations of symptoms would she be most likely to report to her psychiatrist? And our answer choices are A, depression and suicidal thoughts, B, flashbacks and increased arousal, C, hyperphagia and hypersomnia, D, euphoria and racing thoughts, or E, confusion and disorientation. Okay, and my answer is B, flashbacks and increased arousal. Okay, and why did you choose that answer choice over any of the other ones? Okay, well, I picked that because this patient had a traumatic event. It sounds like where her life was endangered. So I'm, this, and I know that this is, you know, some form of psych question. She's coming to a psychiatric office. So I'm thinking about post-traumatic stress disorder based on the timeline instead of an acute stress reaction. This has been two months later. So I know that that post-traumatic stress disorder would be would be the thing that I would be thinking about as a diagnosis. But she could have something else. It could be a kind of a red herring. So depression and suicidal thoughts, I would not really think that that there was nothing in the stem to hint that she was suffering from like major depressive disorder or perhaps like borderline personality disorder, which has increased suicidal thoughts. So there was nothing to hint at that kind of diagnosis. So I just eliminate it. Hyperphagia and hypersomnia um, are also symptoms seen with depression, although hyperphagia is seen with atypical depression and hypersomnia is seen with typical depression. Um, Euphoria and racing thoughts. I think of mania like in bipolar disorder being like overly happy, not being able to like get coherent thoughts out properly. And she has really no symptoms like that. And then confusion and disorientation, I would think of possibly in a patient that looked like they had some kind of dementia or delirium or something. Um, She didn't really have anything in the stem that would suggest that. So I think it was pretty straightforward that, you know, and I do know flashbacks and increased arousal are some of the symptoms seen with post-traumatic stress disorder. And if she was going to develop that, and it sounds like she is still under a lot of stress from what happened to her a couple months ago, those would be two things that I would think about. All right. And that's completely correct. The patient is suffering from PTSD and the common system symptoms, as you said, include flashbacks, intrusive thoughts, uh, nightmares, insomnia, hypervigilance, and increased arousal. Mm-hmm. So in this patient, again, like you said, since it was longer than a month period, it's your PTSD instead mm-hmm. of acute stress disorder. And I think you pretty much hit on all the major highlights there. Uh, I guess I should have, I could also mention the timeline thing. So I know that the, instead of acute stress disorder 
That's if their response is less than a month. So if it looks like PTSD, but it hasn't been a month since the trauma happened, then you'd want to pick acute stress disorder. Not that this was a diagnosis question, but just if. And then if it's longer than a month, you pick PTSD. And the onset of the symptoms have to occur within the first month of after the event. I think that, yeah. Oh, persistent negative beliefs or feelings about things is one of the an impaired concentration. Those are another two PTSD symptoms that sometimes get looked over. And now here's Alex and Elizabeth continuing our psychiatry high yield question dissections. All right. A 75-year-old man is admitted to the hospital for altered mental status of unknown etiology. He seems slightly confused, but answers most questions appropriately when talking to the physician. At one point, he jumps up from the chair and screams that there are ants everywhere, even though there are none. He continues to insist that the hospital is overflowing with ants. Which of the following psychiatric symptoms is this person experiencing? A. Illusions. B. Delusions. C. Dementia. D, hallucinations, or E, loose associations. Okay, well, I feel really bad for this guy to <laughs> think that everything is covered in ants, but I'd say the answer choice is probably going to be D, hallucination, yeah. because it's the perception of an external stimuli. Mm-hmm. So he's thinking that there are ants everywhere outside, whereas an illusion or... An illusion would be an inaccurate response to real sensory stimuli, mm-hmm. and a delusion would be some, sort of like a fixed belief rather than a projection of stuff of outside stimuli. Yeah, absolutely. I always think of like magicians. I think they told us this in med school. Like magicians do illusions. Like they make you like you're seeing something really happening in front of your eyes, but the magicians are using mirrors and smoke to make you perceive the things that are in front of you differently. So like mm-hmm. that's that's why it's an illusion. And then a hallucination is something that is completely not there. There's nothing there. And you're seeing like an entirely made up thing in front of you. I think people have less difficulty differentiating that from a delusion, which is just like, you know, we use that oh. kind of in common phrase, like that person is deluded. They think this about that. So it's just a fixed false belief. Now, uh, something I'd like to add is, even though this question only asked us what psychiatric symptoms this guy's experiencing, um, if they had asked us instead what could be things causing these hallucinations, mm-hmm. um, in these kind of situations, mm-hmm. there could there's a whole variety of things that can cause it. But the fact that he had um, visual and potentially tactile, if you because mm-hmm. he Cause jumps out of it, him, yeah, yeah, they're all over him. You're going to probably see those more in, well, tactile hallucinations, at least, in situations of drug abuse or drug withdrawal, mm-hmm. whereas you're going to see more the visual hallucinations um, in dementia, Parkinson's, other neurodegenerative disorders can involve hallucinations. Um, so with this patient, if we were to take it that one step further and say why he's having the hallucinations given that he's his age and his confusion, it could be that he has some form of neurodegenerative disease. Totally. Yeah, definitely. And Louis body dementia um, would be one of them. What, so what drugs of withdrawal, what drug of withdrawal do you think of with this uh, sensation of bugs crawling on you, which is also called formication? So with 
these kind of situations, if you're looking at patients who are abusing drugs or withdrawing from drugs and from my experiences in rotations with the ED, I can tell you that people who are withdrawing from alcohol um, tend to have these tactile stimulations, as well as people who are currently actively abusing and using uh, cocaine and other methamphetamines can get these tactile hallucinations. That's totally right. Yep. All right. Awesome. All right. (laughs) Drugs. Wonderful things. Don't do drugs, kid. Don't do drugs. Don't do drugs because you don't want to have, you know, ants crawling all over your skin. Right. Exactly. That, that like literally would give me nightmares. (laughs) (laughs) Just thinking about it sounds terrible. Yeah, exactly. So I'll ask you the next question. Um, We have a 30-year-old homeless individual is admitted to the hospital after he was found trying to cut his wrist. He has a history of major depressive disorder and has been admitted at the same hospital several times for attempted suicide. He reports that his depression has been worsening over the past two months and that he's been experiencing auditory hallucinations for the past year. Two months ago, the auditory hallucination started with preached religious instructions, but a week ago, they began instructing him to kill himself. On physical exam, he is alert and oriented, but does not make eye contact. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? And our answer choices are A, bipolar disorder, B, brief psychotic disorder, C, depression, D, schizoaffective disorder, or E, schizophrenia. And I would go with D, schizoaffective disorder. That is indeed the correct answer. So I think the things to think about here are that he definitely has, like we definitely know he sounds like schizophrenia because he's got more than two of these symptoms that we know about, like the auditory hallucinations, they're instructing him to do things. Um, mm-hmm. he, he looks like he's probably going to have some kind of diagnosis that has to do with schizophrenia but he also has a history of major depressive disorder diagnosis so that's the first clue that's a little off because schizophrenia does not mean that you're suicidal like schizophrenic patients are by no means automatically also depressed and suicidal although they often uh, can be depressing to have that illness Um, but he has major depressive disorder and he's attempted suicide and has had hospital admissions for it so the fact that he has like severe you know, what we categorize as mood symptoms of being very depressed at the same time displaying a number of symptoms associated with schizophrenia and that during that psychotic episode, like during those hallucinations while he's been hearing voices has, it sounds like, begun a mood episode that has occurred during that psychotic episode, then we consider that schizoaffective disorder. So it's kind of like a combination of a a severe mood disorder and schizophrenia symptoms. There, that is correct. Oops, go ahead. Go sorry. ahead. No, go ahead. Um, yeah. So how I look at these kind of questions is um, in this patient, you could make an argument for a couple of the different answer choices if you didn't like catch mm-hmm. all of the hints in the vignette. So with this patient, though, you have, as you said, both mood symptoms and schizophrenic symptoms, which is why you would get schizoaffective. Mm-hmm. However, if it had been um, a brief psychotic disorder, for example, um, he would only present the way we could differentiate that it's not brief psychotic disorder. I should say it that way is the fact that it's been happening 
for more than a month. It's mm-hmm. been two months or more that he's been having these issues and mm-hmm. he's been having these psychotic symptoms. So that's how you can eliminate brief psychotic disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, you can eliminate just generalized depression because he's got these schizophrenic symptoms and you can eliminate regular schizophrenia because he's having these mood symptoms. So that really only leaves you with schizoaffective and bipolar disorder. But for to cut out bipolar disorder, you would have someone who would be having major mood swings between depression and like hypomania or mania, depending on what type of bipolar disorder he has. And the vignette gives you no hints of any manic or Mm -hmm. hypomanic stages. So then that's how you'd eliminate that answer, leaving us with only D, the schizoaffective, as our answer choice. Yeah, that makes sense to me, too. That's very good. All right. So I have a farm question for you. Oh, fun. (laughs) A 46-year-old man comes to the emergency department because of hallucinations. Over the course of his stay in the ED, he becomes agitated, aggressive, and combative. His records show that he is taking an antifungal for athlete's foot. His pulse is 96 beats per minute with an irregular heart rhythm. And his blood pressure is 175 over 96 millimeters of mercury. Which of the following medications is most appropriate for the acute management of his symptoms? A. Haloperidol. B. Lorazepam. C. Quetiapine or D. D, thioridazine, or E, ziprazidone. Okay, so in this patient, the big things that we want to take away is the fact that he's agitated and combative, but he's also having this irregular heartbeat. So the thing we're going to be worried about is QT prolongation in a patient like this, where some of these medications that you listed are going to increase the QT prolongation or they're going to cause QT prolongation, I should say it that way. Mm -hmm. And that's going to cause even more issues in these patients. So from these answer choices, um, most of them, if I'm looking at them right, all do cause some form of QT prolongation, except for lorazepam, because it's a benzodiazepine, and those are less likely to cause Mm -hmm. QT prolongations than any of these other drugs, which are all antipsychotics. In any case, we should probably keep this patient on an echocardiogram just to make sure that any medications we administer to him don't cause QT prolongation because he's probably also given the fact that he's agitative, aggressive, combative, and he's having hallucinations. Um, I've seen these patients in the ED before, and usually these are the kind of patients that are probably either withdrawing from alcohol or they are otherwise having some kind of withdrawal symptoms. So in a patient like this, the lorazepam would also have the added benefit of helping with his alcohol withdrawal symptoms. That's a good point. That is a good point. What other signs of alcohol withdrawal does he have in the vignette, potentially? So he actually probably has most of them. He has an irregular, well, the irregular heartbeat is the QT prolongation that we're worried about, but he has tachycardia. Well, Mm -hmm almost tachycardia. He has a uh, very bad hypertension and then he has the aggressiveness and the hallucinations, which are all signs and symptoms of stages of alcohol withdrawal. Yeah, that's good. I think I would use lorazepam too. Uh, what else do we know about these other, these other anti, so all the other choices pretty much are like antipsychotics, right? Correct. What, um, like in what situation would you have used haloperidol? 
Um, so haloperidol is usually something people would use for um, treatment of schizophrenia mm-hmm. or something like Tourette syndrome. It can be used in alcohol withdrawal as well for the hallucinations. Mm-hmm. But given this patient's irregular heartbeat and heart rhythm, we don't use haloperidol because it has the known reason of increasing the QT length, mm-hmm. which is something we definitely want to avoid. Mm-hmm. Um as for quintiapine, that's also a medication that can be used for schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, um, but it doesn't really have any uses in alcohol withdrawal. And as we said before, it's, since it's an antipsychotic, it's going to cause, again, QT prolongation. Same with the thyridazine is another thing. Atypical antipsychotic treats schizophrenia, causes QT prolongation not really useful for our patient. Mm-hmm. And same with zepridazone. Again, treats schizophrenia, treats bipolar disorder, and causes increased QVT prolongation. So really the only other answer choice, if you were just looking at it from an alcohol withdrawal standpoint, mm-hmm. would be the haloperidol. But this is one of those boards questions where there's that one little thing that changes it between the two answer choices mm-hmm. is the fact that he has the irregular heartbeat. And because of that... You cannot use haloperidol because it will cause the Q or can cause the QT prolongation, and that would be very deleterious to our patient. Right, lead to torsades. So uh, we would also haloperidol is really good for delirium in the elderly. So in other circumstances where you don't have con- a specific concern for the QT interval, um, that would be very much an answer choice that you could pick on step one if you have an elderly patient like sundowning when they get kind of like goofy and are acting a little wacky and maybe endangering themselves towards the evening in the hospital um, one way to avoid having to put them into restraints which increases risk of physical harm is to use something like haloperidol remember that the second generation though antipsychotics the atypical antipsychotics like quetiapine um, all are associated with that black box warning for sudden death sudden cardiac death in elderly patients. And that's a big board's uh, thing to remember. Unless there are very specific circumstances, uh, even in real life, even though in real life we might make exceptions to this rule, you would um, want to avoid giving an elderly patient an atypical antidepressant because of that black box warning. So, yeah, I think that's it then. Next question. A 17-year-old girl is brought to the emergency room by her parents after she was found trying to ingest bleach. She appears restless and agitated and says she is a terrible person who does not deserve to be alive. Her parents report that she has been more talkative and irritable than usual. However, since yesterday, she has been confused and withdrawn. She had not slept for more than four hours a night for the last two weeks, and she was fired from her summer job due to making inappropriate sexual innuendos. She tells you that her bad behaviors have been broadcasted on the national news and that the police are looking for her. However, neither of these things have happened. Which of the following is the most appropriate medication to be administered as a first-line therapy for her condition? A. Buspirone B. Haloperidol C. Lithium or D. Mirtazapine The correct answer is C. Lithium. This patient is suffering from bipolar 1 disorder, which is characterized by mood episodes of extreme highs, called mania, and lows, or depression, that cause a drastic change in the person's usual state. Manic symptoms consist of elevated or irritable mood lasting for at least a week. 
grandiosity, decreased need for sleep, talkativeness, racing thoughts, hypersexuality, distractibility, and psychomotor agitation are other symptoms of mania. By contrast, bipolar 2 disorder is characterized by hypomanic rather than manic episodes. Major depression is characterized by dysphoria most of the day, with diminished interest in nearly all daily activities and thoughts of worthlessness or inappropriate guilt, as well as suicidal ideation and or suicide attempt. Psychotic features and anxious distress, as displayed by this patient, increase the diagnostic specificity of bipolar disorder. Lithium is the mainstay of treatment for bipolar disorder for adults and adolescents, especially for acute mania, maintenance, and reduction of suicide risk. It is not metabolized and is excreted almost exclusively through the kidneys, contributing to its long-term nephrotoxicity. Lithium's mechanism of action is poorly understood. One hypothesis is that it dampens several neurotransmitter systems, including serotonin, dopamine, glutamate, GABA, and norepinephrine, by depleting the second messenger, inositol. Next question. A 56-year-old man with a clean bill of health and an 80-pack year history has decided that he wants to quit smoking and approaches his doctor for advice. After discussing the options, the patient declines a recommendation of varenicline because of a friend that took it and gained weight. You explain that weight gain is a possible side effect of quitting smoking, giving smoking's anorectic qualities in some smokers. Which of the following pharmacological options would be best for this patient? A. Bupropion plus varenicline. B. Nicotine patches. C. Bupropion plus nicotine patches. Or D. Sertraline plus clonidine. The correct answer is C. Nicotine patches and bupropion. Nicotine patches along with bupropion have been shown to be a more effective treatment than nicotine patches or bupropion alone. Both are acceptable treatment, but a combination of the two improves the chances of this individual successfully quitting. This patient has refused varenicline therapy, and you should respect his wishes. Clonidine and SSRIs have not been shown to be effective. Remember that bupropion is contraindicated in patients with a seizure disorder and also in patients with a current diagnosis of anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa. Next question. A 35-year-old man comes to the emergency department for multiple injuries from a bar fight. He admits to having alcohol and an unknown street drug before the fight. Prior documentation indicates that the patient has been hospitalized multiple times to the hospital's detox unit. He is agitated and uncooperative with history and examination and refuses to disclose his recent drug use. Which of the following drugs is most likely fatal from withdrawal? A. Alcohol B. Cocaine C. Heroin or D. Methamphetamine Correct answer is A. Alcohol Each addictive substance has a distinct pattern of intoxication and withdrawal. Alcohol, barbiturates, and benzodiazepines are widely considered the most fatal substances to suffer withdrawal from. The other drugs listed have a variety of withdrawal symptoms which can be incredibly distressing to the patient but are not deadly. Delirium tremens is the most severe form of alcohol withdrawal syndrome and is characterized by delirium, agitation, diaphoresis, hallucinations, and other signs of autonomic hyperactivity. If left untreated, the mortality rate of delirium tremens is about 35%. This is reduced to about 15% with medical intervention. Death typically results from seizure, respiratory failure, or cardiac collapse. Standard treatment for alcohol withdrawal is benzodiazepines, 
Vitamins such as thiamine and folic acid are often given to treat nutrient deficiency. Antipsychotics are sometimes given in severe cases, such as in delirium or hallucinations, although caution should be taken because they decrease the seizure threshold. Haloperidol is preferred due to less seizure induction activity than other antipsychotics. All right, thanks for listening. That's all we have for today. We'll be back with another episode for the Study Smarter series for the USMLE Step 2 and shelf exams. Please tell your friends, and if you have a moment before this podcast ends, pick up your phone and hit subscribe. And if you're not driving, leave a review of the podcast wherever you're listening now. It helps us get the message out and keep providing you the best free audio resource for board prep and medical school. Thanks again.